Well, good morning, everyone. Sorry for the ringing. Would you open up your copy of God's Word to John chapter 18, which is where we'll be this morning. We spent the last four chapters of John in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples as Jesus prepared them for his coming death. And in our text this morning, the dominoes, as it were, are at last beginning to fall, and the events of the final days of Jesus' life on earth are set in motion. Um, before we read our text, I, I just wanted, I just felt a sense from the Lord in preparing for this morning, just to, to take a quick moment, um, and we, we do this periodically, so this wouldn't be like a new thing that most of you guys will be hearing, but I just think it's good for us to take a moment to remember, like, what is, what is about to happen right now? What, what is this moment about? It, it's not like any other moment that we have had this week or that we're going to have this week. This morning, right now, in this next 45 minutes to an hour or so, through the inspired Word of God, written by the Apostle John, God, our Father, He wants to draw our attention and our affections and our allegiance to Jesus, his son, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the way that he's going to do that is through the preaching of his word. That's what's about to happen right now. There's nothing magical about this moment, but it is a supernatural moment. God wants to meet us through the reading and the preaching of his word. And so I, I just want to ask you, would you be expectant of that as you listen today? Not because of me, not because I've got some profound thing to tell you, because God wants to address us this morning. So let's, let's, let's allow our hearts as best we can by the power of the spirit to be fertile ground to receive his word. Okay, we're going to read in John 18 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captains and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. 
Oh Lord, what a privilege it is to be gathered together again this Sunday morning uh, with your people here in Midland, Texas, brothers and sisters of Christ, uh, gathered together to sing your praise, gathered together to fellowship with one another, but Lord, gathered together to hear the preaching of your word. Lord, Lord we, we want to hear. Lord, we want to, to be changed by you this morning. We want, we want to receive whatever uh, intention you have for each of us this morning. So would you make us open? Or would you give us an eagerness, an anticipation to hear from you? Uh, Lord, speak to us. Lord, use this time for your glory, Lord. And for our good, we pray. Amen. Well, how would you answer this if I asked you the question, who is in control of your life? If you're a Christian, it's likely you would say the obvious and correct Sunday school answer, Jesus. Of course, yes, Jesus is in control of our lives. Most of us probably believe that, at least from a theological standpoint. Jesus made everything. Jesus knows everything. Jesus is more powerful than everything. So therefore, we know Jesus is in control of everything. What if I asked you to give me your honest answer? To think about actual categories in your life. Things like where you spend your money. We talked about a second ago. Or, or how you choose to spend your free time. Or how you decide where to live or go to school or work. You know, you know things like that. Would you give a different answer about who's in control of your life? I think if we're honest, most of us probably would. Um, at least to some de degree, we would say that we think we're in control of our life. And it's so easy to act as though we really are the ones in control of our destiny, isn't it? I was talking to Pastor Allen about this earlier this week. Uh, we were texting back and forth about the sermon and the text, and uh, we were talking about this control thing. And he, he sent uh, this text, and I'm just going to read his text because it was, it was insightful, man. Um, so this is what he said. He said, some of us go around with the illusion of being in control proud of our accomplishments and successes, confident in our own ability to manifest whatever we're thinking, to put it in secular terms, or to have enough faith to make God get us the results that'll make us happier, to put it in spiritual terms. We can sometimes think we're in control, but the reality is we're not as in control as we think we are. And isn't that true? We can be blinded by our pride to think we've got everything under control until something happens to remind us that we don't. You lose your job. Your toddler colors all over the kitchen walls with a Sharpie. Your best friend moves away. Your girlfriend dumps you. A natural disaster damages your home. Someone you love dearly contracts a, a terminal illness. Doesn't take much to remind us how little control we actually have in our lives. And while many of us, um, while, while some of us, sorry, not many of us, while some of us may do well to be reminded that we are not in control, I think some of us here maybe don't need that reminder. Maybe we know all too well how little control we have over all the difficulty and pain that we face in our life. Maybe that kind of stares us in the face on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe it's in your workplace the hours that you're expected to work or, or the people that you have to work with or the standards that your company expects you to maintain. 
Maybe it's in your family, the behavior of your kids, or the sin struggles of your spouse, or managing expectations of extended family members. Or maybe what feels out of control for you is your health, chronic sickness, annoying aches, immobilizing pains, fear of what might be coming around the corner. I turned 40 this April. And before you laugh, I heard some snickers. I realized that more of the seasoned saints among us are probably saying, oh, just wait, Sonny. You, you don't have any idea what's happening. But my body is the oldest it's ever been. And the aches and the pains, even of a 40-year-old, are real aches and pains. Um, seriously, some of you know this about me. For about the last year or two, I've had a chronic lower back issue. And I'm not sure what is causing it. I have prayed for the Lord to heal me. I've, had, I've asked others to pray for me. I've gone to the chiropractor. I've gotten x-rays done. I've tried soaking in Epsom salts and doing stretches and having dry needles electrocute my subsurface muscles. Nothing has seemed to provide any lasting relief, and, and it affects me. Certainly not in a way that some of you may experience pain on a day-to-day basis, but it's there. And there's very little I feel I can do to get it under control. I know God is in control. I know that. But if I'm not careful, I can be tempted to wander into vain imaginations about my body or about my future. Will this ever go away? Will it be with me till I die? Am I doing something wrong that's just making this worse? Am I just a pansy? Or perhaps there's something really serious going on that I just haven't been able to discover yet. I don't want to be overdramatic, but if I'm honest, it can be frightening. It can be frustrating. It can be discouraging. And maybe that's how you're feeling today about whatever circumstance you're facing in your life. Maybe it's a battle with a certain sin issue. Maybe it's the burdening weight of your finances. Maybe it's the birth of another child into your family or the pain of a broken relationship. And you feel discouraged. You you feel helpless. You feel like life is out of control. I think God wants to speak into your and my situation today. And it may be with the reminder that he has everything in control. It might be good for some of us to hear. Or it may be to remind you that you are not the one in control. I think both of those things would be good for us to hear. God wants each of us, and this is our main point for the sermon today, he wants each of us to take courage in the Christ who is always in control. I think he wants us to receive encouragement this morning, literally to be given courage. And that courage, it's going to come from somewhere in particular. It isn't mustered up inside of ourselves. It isn't accessed by changing our circumstances. Courage that's going to have any lasting effect on how you and I live our lives this week. It can only come from the Christ who is always in control. That's where it has to be rooted. We have to look to Christ. We have to believe that he is in control. Nothing else will help us face opposition or loss or pain or suffering or the future. We need, what we need this morning, church, we need a fresh revelation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All throughout John's gospel, this has been the one thing that's been on his mind. Remember his purpose statement. We've said this all throughout this. These are written in John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing 
You may have life in his name, or you may have joy in his name, or you might have courage in his name. This is John's entire reason for writing his gospel. This is what has guided the use of every single word that he's chosen on every page, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's saying this, believe in Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Believe in him. He's not just a mere man. He wasn't just another prophet or an unusually gifted teacher or a dynamic leader who could draw a crowd with a few party tricks. Jesus was, and Jesus is. Do we believe this? And Jesus is, and Jesus will forever be the Christ, the Son of God. Remember how John began his gospel in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the Lord of the past and the present and the future. Verse 3 continues, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Which means He has complete authority over all that's been created. Authority to turn water into wine. Authority to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to calm the storm, to open the eyes of the blind, to raise the dead. In every scene of every chapter of John's gospel, he shows us this. Christ is in control of heaven and earth, of death and life, of good and evil. There is nothing outside of his control. Nothing can stand in his way. He is always reigning, always ruling even if it doesn't look like it, to our limited human perspective and finite ability to comprehend the ways of an infinite God. So John wants us this morning to take courage. That's what I'm going to argue, to take courage in the Christ who is always in control. That's our first point. Point one, Christ will never not be in control. I realize that's a double negative, but I was trying to go for some effect there. It's kind of like that head and shoulders commercial with uh, Patrick Mahomes and Troy Palomalo, never not working. I don't know if you know what that is. seems like nobody does. Okay. Um, Anyway, Christ is never not in control. There is never a moment when Jesus thinks, huh, I didn't see that coming. Or, or, uh uh-oh, I better come up with something to fix this. Or, now why didn't I think of that? That's not what Jesus does. Even in a passage like John 18, when we might be tempted, at least at first glance, to think that Jesus might be starting to lose a little bit of a grip of control over the situation, John wants us to believe, and I want to make sure that we're thinking about this all throughout this morning. John wants us to believe Christ is never not in control. Let me set the scene for us. The disciples have just concluded their private meeting with Jesus in the upper room. It's been an emotional evening. They shared the Passover meal together. Jesus talked about his body being broken and his blood being spilled. After dinner, Jesus gets down and washes the feet of each of his disciples, including Judas, who would betray him. The whole atmosphere then kind of shifts, and Jesus gives a farewell final speech, including some really sad and really hard things for his disciples to hear and to understand. And even though much of what Jesus said was intended to encourage them, you'll remember his disciples instead seemed saddened and confused and discouraged. And then Jesus concludes the evening in the upper room by lovingly turning to the Father in prayer for them. We saw this the last couple weeks. And he asks the Father to keep them and to guard them, and to sanctify them, and to unite them as one with himself. And then, after Jesus says amen, 
we come to verse 1 of chapter 18. He and his disciples head downstairs and out into the moonlight. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, the brook Kidron, uh, I'm not, no, not sure I'm saying that right, but Kidron, Kidron, something like that, was a very famous brook in the city of Jerusalem. And in my mind, I, I kind of, as I'm thinking about this, I imagine it looking a little like one of those draws that are kind of on the outskirts of Midland, uh, on the edges of the town. You know, most of the year, it's kind of dried up, uh, like a big dried up ditch. But, you know, sometimes it's got lots of water flowing through it uh, during some rainy seasons. And I think that was kind of what this brook was like. But except that during Passover, uh, it, which was a rainy season, rainwater would, would mix in, those, in this brook with hundreds of gallons of blood draining out of the temples from all the lambs that were being sacrificed there. I read something like 265,000 lambs would be sacrificed at Passover. So you just imagine all the blood draining into this brook and mixing with the rainwater. So it's not really the most sanitary place to be taking an evening stroll. And, and that's probably a detail that can kind of get easily lost on us. But I think it's one that surely would have had an emotional effect on the original readers of John's gospel. They would have known the Kidron Brook. They would have known how to say it too. Uh, they would have known where this brook was located. They would have known that part of town. They, they could have maybe even have imagined what that murky water looked like and smelled like. So I, I think this is a brilliant use of, of literary imagery that, that John uses to kind of set the mood for this next scene that we're coming into. Um, so, but where, where is it that Jesus and his disciples are going? Are they on the run? Are they trying to hide? Well, look at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us the Christ who is always in control, he visits this garden on purpose. Look at verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. What place is that? The garden. Also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Okay, so John's letting us know this is a familiar garden. In fact, we learn from the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this was the garden of Gethsemane, where moments before... Judas arrives on the scene in chapter 18 of John. Jesus had just been sweating drops of blood as he prayed to his father. I mean, think about this. Jesus, he could have gone anywhere that night that he wanted to go. He, he could have gone into hiding. He could have miraculously disappeared like he he'd had before when people had tried to arrest him. He could have found a Whataburger. But instead, Jesus, he seems to intentionally choose a place that he knew Judas would expect him to be at. That's really important. How do we know that, though? Am I just making that up? Re remember what Jesus said to Judas back in chapter 13, verse 27 and 28, when he revealed to his disciples who it was that was going to betray him by telling him, uh, sorry, telling them it would be the one to whom he gave the morsel of bread. Remember he said that in verse 27, uh, it says, Jesus said to him, to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then verse 28 says this, now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him, why Jesus said this to Judas. But, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew Judas was now under the influence of Satan, which we had heard earlier. Jesus knew Judas was be, would be leaving the upper room and heading straight to the Sanhedrin. Jesus knew Judas was going to betray the Son of God for a few measly silver coins. Jesus knew that Judas would bring the mob that would arrest him. And set into motion the chain of events that would eventually end him with being crucified on a cross. And Jesus knew the most obvious place Judas would think to look for him. So, 
Jesus and his disciples cross over that bloody brook and enter into the moonlit garden to patiently wait for Judas to arrive. And and that's exactly what Judas does. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there to that garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. It's ironic that just a few days prior to this, Jesus was being praised with palm branches when now he's being pursued with pitchforks. John tells us that this motley crew consisted of a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. The band of soldiers would have been a squadron of Roman soldiers, likely numbering somewhere, theologians think, in the neighborhood of about 600 men. And they probably would have been sent by the Roman government to ensure crowd control in case things maybe started to get out of hand. And then John tells us tagging along with them were officers sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. And and these officers were, for lack of a better term, the temple police or the glorified hall monitors of the temple. They were sent by the higher ups to do their dirty work, arresting Jesus and bringing him to trial. And I think by including all these details, John is seeming to be implying that Jesus had posed such a threat to the Roman government, to both the Roman government and the Jewish religious system, that they were now willing, they were always opposed with each other, but now they're willing to conspire together against Jesus, to join forces to ensure that something would be done about this self-proclaimed Messiah who was causing trouble around town. And they were really working hard to look intimidating. I mean, you got to give it to them with their lanterns and torches and weapons clanging about in the night. And they got 600 plus people there trying to look as menacing as possible with their civil and religious show of force. Judas probably is really proud of himself leading this huge horde of soldiers and religious leaders out to arrest Jesus. I don't know how they ever thought they were sneaking up on Jesus and his disciples. It's the middle of the night. They would have likely been able to see and hear them coming long before they arrived at the garden with their torches and their weapons. I can imagine how terrified that must have made the disciples feel. But like that day, out in the boat, on the stormy sea, Jesus is not terrified. Jesus is calm. And why is Jesus calm? Because Christ is never not in control. We sang it this morning. Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm, when the winds of doubt blow through me, And my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow. When my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So the disciples, they kind of huddle behind Jesus. I can imagine them huddling behind Jesus just to kind of wait to see what's Jesus going to do. These people are coming and and they're, they're just trying to take courage in the Christ who's always in control. And that leads us to our next point, point two. Christ will choose, Christ will choose, let me say that differently, Christ will choose when to lay down his life. And by that I mean nobody's going to make him do it. Christ is going to choose when he's going to do that. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Let's stop right there. So Jesus isn't afraid because Jesus already knows their next move. That's what John tells us there. Jesus has the inside scoop on their little covert mission. (laughs) Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus isn't taken off guard. In fact, it's been Jesus and his father's plan since the very beginning 
to have this night happen. Judas, the chief priests, the Roman soldiers, even Satan himself, sure, they're in a very real sense, they're carrying out the desires of their own evil hearts. But whether they realize it or not, what they are really doing is the king's business. And everything is going exactly according to plan. And this is such a fascinating part of this text, this story, because everything about what we are reading here is unexpected. Uh, Look again in verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? I mean, think, think about that. You'd think one of the soldiers, the chief priests would be the ones to come and make the first move. I mean, they are there trying to arrest Jesus, issue a warrant for his arrest. But instead, what does John tell us? John says it's Jesus who comes forward. He doesn't cower away in fear. He doesn't make a run for cover. He places himself in the position of authority at his own arrest. The Christ, who is always in control, takes charge of the interrogation before it even begins. He doesn't wait for them. He isn't on their timetable. He assumes control of how this is going to go down, provide, uh, proving his complete control of the situation. And he demands that they declare, this is so, so ironic, he, de- he demands that they declare their intentions to him for who it is that they've come to find. And it's him. <laughs> Look at verse 5. They answered him. So they, so they answer him. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, uh, Jesus. They answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. But, but think about that. It's unexpected. Why would they say that? It seems like they would have said, well, you, we're coming to arrest you. But they don't say that. They say, Jesus of Nazareth. Why do they say that? Maybe it was their way of presenting a more formal warrant for Jesus' arrest. Or maybe their eyes are so darkened by evil that even with the help of torches and lanterns, they aren't able to recognize the light of the world standing right there before their eyes. But either way, Jesus obliges and confirms his identity. Look in verse five, uh, 5b. Jesus said to, him, to them, I am he. And this is profound. In the Greek, there's no he. It's just I am. Literally, Jehovah. The name of God himself. It's the self Sorry, it's the same self-disclosing name that God proclaimed to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. And here, Jesus is claiming that same name as his own name. And as soon as he proclaims it, everyone standing before Jesus, including Jesus, uh, Jesus, <laughs> including Judas, who we heard was possessed by Satan himself, even that guy, knocked to their feet. Hey, they fall back. They, they fall to the ground, it says. Makes me think of Philippians 2, verse 9 and 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, I am, every knee should bow. He is the Christ who is always in control. It's as if anyone might have showed up thinking otherwise. Uh, what, what did I mean there? I don't know what I meant when I wrote that. Um, it's as if anyone might have showed up. Oh, 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 that's what I'm trying to say. Sorry. Uh, editor problem here. I, what I was trying to say is that it, it's not like anybody showed up there thinking that they weren't going to be in control. I mean, all the, this whole crowd is coming. They've got these lanterns and weapons. They're thinking, we're in charge here. But just in case anybody uh, was thinking that too much, Jesus wants to let them know, I'm in charge. I'm the Savior. If you're going to capture me, it's because I'm going to allow it. 
Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 10 of John's gospel? Why don't you go ahead and turn there? John 10, verse 17. This is what Jesus said. I lay down my life. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Because I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus had already taught the disciples this and now he's doing it in front of them. 600 men aren't going to take down almighty God. Not even 600,000 men, 600,000 armed men would stand a chance against the limitless power of the Son of God. And that makes me think of a hymn, Billy and I talked about this this week, written by Martin Luther called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The third verse, this verse, you guys, this verse is awesome. Listen to this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. This is what we'll do. We, we will not fear. Why? For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, Satan, these evil people, prince of darkness, he's grim. I'll give you that. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, this is why his doom is sure. And what, is it, what does it say? One little word shall fell him. Doesn't that make you think of John 18? Jesus says, I am, and they fall to their faces. Everyone's stunned. What courage it must have given Jesus' disciples to witness such a display of God's power right in front of their faces. And I think that's, that's the intention of this passage for us this morning. This is what this story is meaning to do for us. It's, it's courage that it's trying to give to you in whatever uh, devil stands in front of your face, whatever rage that you're feeling from him. This is trying to remind you that you can have courage in Christ. Fellow Christians, Christ's name, this is the name that we bear. We are called Christians. Whatever trial or difficulty we, we face, whatever evil or persecution or suffering that we endure, it wouldn't even come close to what Jesus was facing that day in John 18. And it definitely wouldn't come close to what he would face in the next couple of chapters when he dies for us. It would be infinitely harder for Jesus to suffer through what he suffered than it would be for us to suffer through what we have to suffer. It doesn't mean it's not suffering. It is but it's infinitely harder for Peter and James and John to witness what's about to go down for Jesus than it is for us to go through whatever we're going through. And John is trying to give us this passage to help us to know that we can take courage in Christ who is always in control. And that brings us to the final section of our, uh, of our text. This is verse 7 through 11. And that point is Christ will provide protection for his own. So Christ is never not in control. Christ, I forgot my second point. <laughs> Anybody remember what that was? Christ will, somebody read it out loud? I'm sorry. Choose to let, yes, willingly. I've had so many different ways that I worded that. Christ, Christ, will, Christ will choose to lay down his life, his own life. 
And then the third point, Christ will provide protection for his own. After everyone stumbles back up to their feet, um, again, just another unexpected thing. Jesus, it seems like he has to remind them what it was that they were there for in the first place. (laughs) Uh, So verse 7, he asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then John gives us a little editorial note. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Again, the Christ who's always in control. This is Jesus exercising his authority and accomplishing his father's will. He's calling the shots. He's defining the rules of engagement. This is Jesus taking the lead and saying, look, if it's Jesus of Nazareth that you guys have come for, I've already made that clear. That's me. So go ahead and take me. But remember, it's me you want. You have no business with these men who are with me. So let them go. You see what Jesus is doing there? What I think John is trying to show us by pointing out the fulfillment of the word that he had spoken in verse 9. Earlier that night, Jesus had prayed in the upper room for his disciples. And this is what Jesus had said to the Father. Look in John 17, verse 12. He said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he's talking about Judas there. So Jesus had just got finished in the upper room praying this, saying, Father, I've done what you've asked me to. I've guarded them. And then he's going to walk out of that upper room, out into the garden, and then he's going to put his money where his mouth was. He's keeping his word. He's, he's telling these, these uh, chief priests, if you seek me, then let these men go. Because what Jesus had promised to his father in chapter 17, he's now carrying that out for his disciples in chapter 18. He's making sure his disciples aren't going to get arrested along with him. And like we've seen all throughout this text, Jesus isn't going to protect them in the way that you'd maybe expect. And maybe that the crowd would expect. I mean, surely they're coming with 600 people and weapons. They're probably looking for a fight. But Jesus isn't going to do that. He's not going to fight back. He isn't going to call down fire on his enemies. He's not going to suddenly make the disciples vanish into thin air. He doesn't draw his sword and start whacking everyone to pieces. That's what Peter's overzealous plan was. Look in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I mean, poor, poor Peter, you got to admire the guy's zeal. Uh, but Peter, time and time again, just doesn't seem to, to get it. He, doesn't, he, he, think, he seems to act before he thinks. Uh, Jesus doesn't need Peter's sword. He doesn't need Peter to try to take matters into his own hands. He, he's Jesus. He, he wants Peter to take courage in the Christ who's always in control. That's what he wants Peter to do. So, so he tells Peter, man, put your sword away. Don't you realize what you're doing? I don't want to start a fight. I'm choosing to give myself up willingly. And I'm doing that so you can go free. This is what I've been saying. This is my hour. If you try to prevent these men from taking me, they will arrest you and I will have failed my father. The time's come. 
for me to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. Please, Peter, I don't need your protection. You need mine. So put your sword away and let them do what they came to do. Isn't that such a sweet picture of the Savior's love, his protective love for his people? Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. He's about to be bound and dragged away. He's going to have his back whipped. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be accused of crimes he didn't commit. Mocked, beaten, tortured. That's not the worst of it. Worst of all, Jesus knows he's going to have to drink the Father's cup. The cup of wrath. The eternal cup of wrath. And that, that's, that's the part that he prays about in the garden. Lord, let this cup pass from me, he says. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Christ Our Mediator, and I think this came from a message he did one time, but I found this in that book. Uh, he helps us to understand why the drinking of that cup was the worst part coming for Jesus. It says this, what Jesus recoils from here is not an anticipation of the physical pain associated with crucifixion. Rather, it's a pain infinitely greater. The utter distress of soul as he confronts total abandonment and absolute wrath from his father on the cross. As we watch Jesus pray in Gethsemane, he has every right, think about this, every right to turn his tearful eyes toward you and me and shout, this is your cup. You're responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should rightfully be thrust into my hand and your hand. But instead, Jesus freely takes it himself so that from the cross, he can look down at you and me, whisper our names and say, I drain this cup for you. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what he's telling Peter. Don't get in my way, Peter. This is what I came to do. This is what I'm going to do. And it's for your good. And it's for the good of all my people who will come after you. On that dark night in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't thinking about himself. He wasn't most concerned with his own safety. He was concerned for the safety of his disciples. He wanted to make sure they were protected. Again, in verse 9, if you seek me, let these men go. But that protective love wasn't only reserved for his disciples. Immediately, immediate context, it was. But it wasn't only for his disciples. The crosshairs of his protective love, they're aimed at each one of us. Another hymn that I thought about is by Philip P. Bliss uh, in a hymn called Hallelujah, What a Savior. Listen, I think he pens this so well. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, that's us, we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. 
Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for us, to die as our substitute, to take our place. And that was so that we could take courage in the Christ who is always in control. Where do you need courage today? Are there any ways that you need to confess your unwillingness to let the Lord be in control of your life? Are there any ways you need to trust the one who's in control? Maybe you're not doing that. We're going to spend some time here in a second um, praying and singing in response to our text this morning. Uh, Steve and Amy, I think, are up for prayer. Is that correct? Yes? Okay. Um, you know, we, we, we don't always, we're not very consistent with how we do the end of these services. Um, we try to remember to, to call you up to pray, to, to invite you to do that. Um, but it's, it's something that, re- that I think we're really missing out on. Uh, as a church, an opportunity that we have. Again, there's no other gathering like this gathering this week. This is the only one we have where we're all going to be together in the same room, having heard the same word preached to us, uh, having felt maybe similar conviction. There's something unique about what this moment is right now. And so when we, when we offer time at the end of a service for you to come and pray and receive prayer, man, I, I just want to, I don't want you to feel guilty about this, but I want to encourage you as strongly as I can. Like, let's, take, let's take opportunity to do that. The Spirit, if, if we're a charismatic church, we, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. This is where those can operate. The Lord can, can minister himself as we lay hands on one another and pray and ask him to uh, to, to take care of our burdens, to ask Him to infuse us with courage and joy as we lift our burdens up to Him and say, Lord, take them. So anyway, I just wanted to encourage us in that way. Uh, so Steve and Amy will be down here. Um, I know we got several other members of the prayer team. If, if, if you guys are seeing people responding, like feel free to come up and pray for one another. Um, and, you know, we, we've got kind of a... Uh, an emphasis of prayer, but that doesn't mean this is the only thing we need to pray about. If you've got healing needs, if you've got uh, financial needs, if you've got just needs that are burdening you down, come. Ask us to pray. Billy will be up here. I'll be up here. Pastor Hughes here. Come, come let us know how we can pray for you. Um, Stephen, you can come on up, man. Yeah, so let's, let's do that together now. I'll pray for us, and then Stephen will lead us in a song. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it uh, exposes us, the way that it um, challenges ways of our, like kind of the ways that we think about things. Or thank you for the way that it encourages us, like we saw in our passage this morning, pretty depressing scene. Uh, We know that it's the turning point where everything's going to go get really bad here for a second, Lord. But even in the midst of all that darkness and evil and and seeming oppression, Lord, Christ stands shining as the light of the world. Lord, and that's meant to give us courage and hope for whatever it is that we're experiencing. 
We can look to Jesus who, who was not able to be overcome. And Jesus, the one who died for us willingly. And we can trust him as he protects us from evil with his life. But we can trust him. Lord, so I just want to pray for my fellow brothers and sisters, Lord, that um, I can't pretend to know what everybody's going through uh, in their lives, Lord, but I, I know that there are certain kinds of needs that, that we have as a church family. There are health needs. There are situational needs. There are relational needs that we have in our church body, Lord. And, and we can be timid. We can be hesitant. We can be afraid to know what to do. Lord, we wouldn't admit this, but we can doubt that anything can even happen about some of these situations. Lord, I know I can. Lord, but you want to you infuse your people with courage this morning. Courage in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, so I lift my brothers and sisters up to you, Lord. If, if there are those here this morning who, who are faint-hearted, who have grown weary, who feel discouraged and depressed, Lord, would you minister yourself now to them? pray you've been doing that as your word has been preached, Lord, but would you minister yourself now? Even, even as we sing, we're going to sing through a song that proclaims a lot of the truths that we've talked about this morning. Or even as, as we sing, Lord, would you let the collective, unified voice of us declaring things that are true and declaring what, how we want to be postured toward you, Lord, would you let that be something that unifies us and that gives us courage and strength? We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Receive our prayers, Lord.